Engaging Leader, Episode 34, How to Communicate with Confidence in the C-Suite, with Diana Booher. Does your leadership inspire trust, passion, and action? Welcome to the Engaging Leader Podcast with Jesse Leahy, consultant, writer, and speaker. Jesse has helped executives engage hundreds of thousands of people. Join us now for principles to communicate, engage, and lead with greater impact. Welcome to the show, leaders. Well, you've made it to the C-suite because of your expertise, but do you have the people skills to be successful with the CEO, CFO, and other executives? How can you create presence that influences others to perceive you as a strategic thinker, a heavy hitter, an adept leader? In short, how do you communicate with confidence in the C-suite? To help us address those questions, our guest is Diana Booher, an expert in executive communications and the author of 45 books published in 26 countries and 20 languages with nearly 4 million copies sold. Her latest books include Creating Personal Presence, Look, Talk, Think, and Act Like a Leader, and the revised edition of Communicate with Confidence. Diana is founder of Booher Consultants, an executive communication training firm. Diana, welcome to The Engaging Leader. Thank you. It's great to be with you. In your latest book, Creating Personal Presence, the subtitle is Look, Talk, Think, and Act Like a Leader. Are all four of those really necessary for communicating in the C-suite? Yes, I think so, if you're going to be a well-rounded leader. Otherwise, you present yourself as just an artifact. You know, there, There's not really a sustainable influence or a significant part when you're playing that role in front of your audience, if they're around in front of your group, in front of your team, in front of your organization, they begin to see through the facade if it's only just the look, if it's only just the talk. There's got to be the ability to think and act extemporaneously, and there also has to be the character to sustain that leadership role. Now, is executive presence just superficial posturing? No, I don't think so. It's it's not just about image. You know, when you talk about presence, a lot of times people think it's just about, you know, dress, appearance, uh, etiquette kind of things. But it really, it involves your your total character, your competence. It's, it's really the essence of who you are. It's does who you are and how you behave and the skills that you bring to your role and to your job. Does that match? how you look and how you talk. And when there's congruence there, then that's really the essence of executive presence. Now, that's interesting, the way you phrase that doesn't match. And I I like in your book, you talk about presence means simply being fully in the right role, that you come across, I'm in the right role for me and I'm fully present in this moment. Right. It's not just putting on an act. It's really making sure that you are acting with intention. It's it's who you are. You know, what you say and do matches what you say in the role that you're presenting to people. And and that's why it's not just superficial. You're not just a poser. You really are who you seem to be out in public. And it's it's not just manipulating others to perceive a certain image. It's it really is for the good of both 
you and the others. It's early in your book, you tell the true story of Caitlin and Rachel, and I think that makes that point very clear. Can you share that story with us? Right. And actually, it sort of puts me in a bad light and using poor judgment, but it really does say how important executive or personal presence is in any situation. I had a a job opening and I had um, a couple of candidates. My team had narrowed it down to three, in fact. And the first candidate that I interviewed for the job, Caitlin, came in. She presented herself really well. She was dressed in a uh, business suit. She looked confident and comfortable. She shook hands, introduced herself, and talked about her history, the skills she brought to the job, made great eye contact. She was very comfortable as I introduced her to several others on the team. And so she made a good first impression. The other person I interviewed out of the three was Rachel. She really had the inside job, Rachel did, because she knew someone whose opinion and judgment I really respected. But when she came in, she did not present herself well. She did not look comfortable. She did not speak comfortable. She did not frame her past experience in a very confident, competent way. And so when I made the decision, I hired the one who made the strongest first impression. But when Caitlin took the job within 10 days, I knew I had made a mistake. She just was not competent. And so I had to let her go after just a few weeks and called up the second best and gave her the job. And Soon she was able to learn because we had very competent speakers in and out of our office. She was able to learn the easier skills, which was to dress a little bit better, learn to speak a little bit better. But the reason I I tell that story in creating personal presence is that it tells you how important those first two subsets are, the most observable, how you look and how you speak, because they're sort of gatekeepers. You know, that's that first impression that people have. And if you don't do those things right, or you don't have those things, they can lock you out of many opportunities. And people, those are sort of the the first steps that if you don't get past the opportunities that you never get to, or people never get to observe the other things about you. So Rachel was not doing herself or you any favors by not communicating the proper presence. And so it was actually, you were missing out on all the great things that that she truly offered. Right. I I missed out on her ability to conceptualize things, her creativity, her ability to think on her feet, the the character issues, her, you know, just all the other things she brought to the job because those first two things, the way she presented herself and her speaking patterns, her speaking skills were the most observable part of the, you know, the subtitle, look, talk, think, and act. Those first two things are what gets you in the door, so to speak, gets you past the gatekeepers so that people can have longer to observe the more important characteristics. Mm-hmm. That's a great story. Now, if the ability to present yourself well matters so much, it's surprising that so few people do it well. In fact, we've all heard employees grumble about having to sit through boring meetings. And if you think about it, in referring to boring meetings, they're talking about their colleagues presenting information. And worse, they're complaining often about their executives who are kicking off management meetings. So before we get into some tips, let me ask you this. Why are so many CEOs and other executives lousy speakers? Well, 
Jesse, I think there there's several reasons. A lot of times CEOs and executives don't first of all, let me let me correct the, the misperception that all lousy as and executives are lousy speakers because they are not. Many of them are great. They're fabulous speakers. That's the reason they're at the top. They rose to the top because they have excellent communication skills. But there are a fair number of them that are are boring. Face it, they're boring. They got to the top because they are exceptional in their technical skills. And they were just promoted up because of their technical skills. But they had someone else who took the out and up front parts for them. In other words, they had support staff who propped them up, who met the public for them, who did the speaking for them, who who met the public and had the inner who met people, had the interactions and the encounters where they had to negotiate and build relationships for them. And so they never really had to develop those skills. That's one reason they remain lousy speakers. When they, and when they, you know, the few opportunities once a year, twice a year when they have to do an all hands on meeting or go to Wall Street and talk about their earnings, they're just not that good. And another reason I think is that they depend on giving out information rather than being persuasive. And they think if I just present people with the facts, the facts speak for themselves. Mm-hmm. And of course, <laughs> facts never speak for themselves. Right. You, you've got to make the facts tell a story. I know in our uh, in our presentations class, a lot of times when we'll go in and talk to an executive and they want us to do classes for them, they'll say something like, would you teach these accountants or would you teach these lawyers or would you teach these whatever engineers to tell a story and not do a data dump? And and sometimes CEOs are still trying to do that. You know, they say, you know, look, look at the results. And they, they need to learn to be persuasive. And I think a third reason is that sometimes they just depend on their position or their title of authority to get people to do things and get their engagement and get people aboard on a new initiative or goal rather than winning them through their personal authority. And personal authority is really important when you're trying to work on a peer-to-peer level, you know, bring on a new supplier or win a new client or a partnership. You've got to appeal to people personally rather than just because, just because I said so, (laughs) you know, it didn't work with a parent and child relationship very well, and it doesn't work (laughs) peer-to-peer either. (laughs) That's right. Now, you say that looking like a leader is the least important of these four components, but it is the most observable. And so, as you mentioned earlier, it creates a first impression that can make a difference and and can last. So, what are some of the high-impact ways that we can increase credibility and influence in our role as an executive by the look or by what others see visibly? Well, I think that one of the key things is energy. And you can see energy. Now, I don't mean willingness to work long hours. <laughs> I mean energy in your voice, energy in your body language, energy in the way you stand, energy in your gestures, energy in your facial expression. Have you ever looked at some of the ways that CEOs, executives look when they stand up at the end of a conference table and speak to a group? I mean, half the time they're leaning on their elbows, (laughs) they're leaning against the lectern, leaning on one foot, 
Now, sometimes, you know, during a Q&A session, they may lean on one elbow to look casual or offline, and that's fine. But when they're delivering a point and they're trying to drive home something that they feel passionate about, you know, a key goal for the year initiative, they need to look like they feel passionate about it. They need to have some energy. Large gestures, moving from their arms, from the elbow is a wimp. A whippy gesture. It looks lackadaisical. They need to use inclusive gestures, which are larger gestures from the shoulders. Walking purposefully, not ambling, not, uh, you know, this little shuffling foot gesture like they're nervous, a nervous fidget with their foot. All of those are, are not appropriate. They're not intentional. They make an executive look weak. So those are some ways that are low impact. And if you do the reverse of those, it would be high impact for an executive. I like in the book, you state that your, your overall goal when creating an executive presence is to create the best first impression that you are ready, energized, yet comfortable in your role. In other words, if you were saying something about we need your input on this. You'd probably, if you were natural and comfortable, like you were talking to friends out at dinner on Friday night, you would probably gesture to your friend. If you had, uh, let's say you had Sally sitting across the table from you, you would reach out and say, Sally, I want your input. You would reach out to her and say something like, Sally, I need your input. But if you're ill at ease, that gesture doesn't quite fit. It looks like a, you're watching a movie. You've seen a movie when the audio is not quite in sync with the picture. Mm-hmm. It looks a little off. Mm-hmm. That's what happens when you see an executive that's ill at ease. Their gestures look a little artificial. They look like they're not quite in sync with the words. It's just stiff. Another tip you mentioned in the book that really rang true for me because it, and has always served me well is realizing that standing tends to create energy and uh, help you be large and in charge. I was first taught that way back when I was just coming out of school and interviewing for my first jobs. And the advice was when you're in the lobby area, don't sit down. If If there's any good reason to be standing up, then when your interviewer comes to get you, then be standing up, be looking at the magazines on the rack or the pictures on the wall. Right. It's the ready position. Yeah. You know, you know, like if you played sports, how your coach always told you to, to stand in the ready position, put your weight on the balls of your feet so that you can go either way. You can pivot, you can move forward. That's, that's the exact position you want to be in as you deliver a, a comment or answer questions from your group or deliver a message. And whether you are an executive or a, let's say a new executive or you are working with executives and you need to have some influence with executives, that posture of standing is is very helpful. And a lot of non-executives feel uncomfortable to stand in front of a group. I, I recently was in a meeting and there was a, a younger member of the team who needed to present to the group. And she kept presenting while seated and she just she was putting spreadsheets up on the screen from her laptop and was just talking through the spreadsheet as she was seated there and when I had the opportunity I pulled her aside and I said standing is the position of influence and 
power, essentially. And if you can stand up, number one, you're actually going to be more clear as you present because you can actually just point to the data that you're talking about. But other people will perceive you as having greater authority on, on any given topic. And that doesn't take any practice. That's just thinking about, would it actually be more appropriate for me to be standing and to have a little bit of courage to stand up in those moments? Yes. We talk about that when we do presentations, training in ours, we have a sit down time where they do sit down presentations, but we make that point often where a sit down presentation doesn't mean that you have to sit down as a presenter. <laughs> there are times where you can sit down and then you stand up at certain times, standing up to do the formal part, sit down for the Q&A, stand up to show a chart, sit back down. So you can sit down and stand up periodically throughout the 20 minutes or 30 minutes that you're talking in front of the group. But you're always more powerful and influential when you stand up. Well, what are ways besides the look that you can increase your impact with how you think about your message and really grab hold of the message? Well, there are several additional ways. One, of course, when we move into that third area, we talked about the look and how you talk, how you think and and help others retain your message would be to tell stories. And, you know, when we tell people about composing your message and how you're going to shape and structure your message when you talk to a group, whether it's, you know, a two-minute update when you step off the elevator, or if it's a 10-minute project report, or if it's, you know, an hour-long formal presentation, most people think about when they tell stories or tell an anecdote or give a case story to a client, that that's going to take a long time. They say something like, well, I've just got 20 minutes. I can't tell a story. You can tell a story in 20 seconds. And I often have a case history on a client in my mind when I'm going to go in to talk to a client or if I'm talking to a group for a formal presentation. And I might have a 20-second version of that story, a two-minute version of that story, and a four-minute version of that story. And it just depends on how far back in the history of that case history or case story that I want to go. I know what the punchline is and what my key point might be, but you can give as much or as little to make the point that you need to make. It might be two lines of dialogue or you might build it up a little bit more, but stories have impact because they hit people emotionally. And it's, there's all kinds of research that supports the fact that people remember what you tell them if it, hits their emotion as opposed to just appealing to them, to their logic. And another thing, instead of just throwing in fact, fact, fact information, if you can think, how can I make this clearer with a metaphor or an analogy or a wordplay so that they remember it and they're saying it over and over, you know, next week, I always tell people, if your management team or your project team walks in next week and they're still quoting a line from your talk, then you've been successful. So one way to think like a leader is when you want to make a point to use a, a story or a metaphor to help you make that point. I think as long as you just are very clear in your mind what the point is so you don't accidentally tell this wandering story and then get off track, which I've seen people do that too. But if you have the one big outcome that you want to come out of this story, your main point and, and yes. keep a laser focus on that. You always want to decide what point do I want to make with this anecdote? When I talked to such and such client in Atlanta last week, what is the key point I want to make 
with this work we did with that client. And then everything that you tell, you choose your details relevant to that key point so that everything is very, very focused. You don't want to just tell a 10-minute story to make a nickel point. You need to make sure that the point is worth telling and the point is worth making and then drive to that point with appropriate details. Now, you also mentioned that one way to talk like a leader is to use metaphor. Do you have an example for practically how a leader has done that? Sure. Steve Jobs gave us a good example when he introduced the iPhone and he said, a thousand songs in your pocket. You know, he could have given us all the features, but he didn't. He didn't give us all the features of the iPod. He just said, a thousand songs in your pocket. And we immediately understood what the reason for having that device was. Why go out and buy it? When we started talking about the internet, people had no clue. If you think back way back in the 90s when we started, what, what's the internet? And we said, well, it's like a highway. <laughs> you get on it and you can go anywhere you want. When we first got into um, sites and we everybody started putting up a website, we said, you need a map, just like you need a map of the city to go somewhere. You need a map of this website. Well, we understood a map to be an analogy. When you describe the, the eye, we say it's like a camera, a lens for a camera. I mean, it's, we've used metaphors for eternity, mm-hmm. for always, to understand complex new concepts. So it, it's essential that anytime you explain something that's new to people, that you relate it to something that they know, that they understand, that's basic to them. You're right. And if, if you can pick a metaphor that you know your audience is familiar with and will understand, and that's truly going to be something meaningful to them and, and is appropriate, it's not go, actually going to, to take them down the wrong path. That does save you a lot of words and is going to help you think and talk a lot more clearly. Yes, people immediately get it. And then you can say, it's like this, except, and then you start to explain the differences. And, you know, politicians do it, celebrities do it, uh, textbook writers do it. I don't care how complex the idea, even movie script writers do it when they describe a new movie. They'll say, well, this is like the perfect storm meets Dumb and Dumber. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so immediately you get, oh, it's like a terrible natural crisis, but everything is funny rather than dramatic. That's right. And when they were pitching the concept for the movie Speed, they said they told their funding people at the movie company, well, it's going to be like Die Hard, but on a bus. Yeah, exactly. See, and people get it. So you have to figure out a way to take the complex and simplify it. And another key principle for thinking on your feet uh, and making your message easy to retain, make your facts tell a story rather than making them unrelated facts. In other words, if let's say you're giving your boss a report on what happened at the trade show. Let's say you go to a big trade show or a convention or a conference, an educational conference, and your boss says, you know, was it any good? Should we pay for all of our staff to go next year? Rather than starting in an unrelated way, well, this many people attended and I went to the trade show and this is what happened and maybe we should have a booth and I went to these three hospitality suites and we had some competitors there and you're just sort of all over the place. You want to start off with an opinion 
You know, yes, we should send all of our staff next year or no, we shouldn't. And then as you relate the information about the conference that you experienced, all of it is going to build the story in, yes, we should go next year and send everyone or no, we shouldn't go next year. And all the facts fit in somehow into that storyline. Yes, we should go or no, we shouldn't. So decide what your storyline is. In other words, stick a stake in the ground, take a stand, take a point of view, and then roll your information out along that storyline. It's not just a data dump when you speak. And so many people do just send out information and they expect the audience or the listener, even if it's just one listener, to come to the end and say, so your point is, and often they even leave them in the dark thinking, I, I didn't get your point. What, what is your point? And as a speaker, we're supposed to tell them up front, here is my point, And this is what I want you to think, know, do, believe, buy, consider. And then you take them through the details to get there. That's a great point. It's taking a page out of the playbook of, of journalists. And you think of a newspaper and the inverted pyramid approach that they take. There's a headline that grabs you very quickly and you know what the general topic will be in this article. And then the very first sentence of the newspaper article tells you the whole point and you don't have to guess. And then everything, as you go deeper into the article, things are less and less important. So it's this inverted pyramid, but your audience isn't sitting there wondering, okay, where is he going with this? You always know where the article's going. And, and if at any point you get interrupted and you don't finish the article, you aren't left hanging. You just don't have all the details, but you know the main point. Right. You always want to learn to summarize and cut the clutter. That is a lost art. Now, if you're used to sending out tweets, you're probably getting better at that. So having to do things in 140 characters is helping a lot of people learn to summarize. But even then, people sometimes don't know how to summarize. They just send out trivial junk. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but that's an art that you need to know whether you're writing, whether you're speaking, whether you're summarizing meeting notes, whether you're leaving voicemail. I mean, that's what drives a lot of people crazy at the executive level is to have staff who says, oh, Mark, just getting back to you. I just got back from a trip, blah, 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 blah. And they go on two minutes before they get to the point. And mm -hmm. that whole thing should say, here's the bottom line message. This is what I need from you. Now, let me reverse that and give you the details to support what I've just asked. They don't have time for the once upon a time version. Yeah, it's, it's worth taking a few seconds before you pick up the phone to make that call to jot down what is your main point and what are the top one, two, or three things that you're going to say to support that point so that when you do get the voicemail, you're prepared to sound straightforward and clear. Yes. I just got a voicemail this afternoon where the person went on. It was a very big business deal. And they went on about three minutes. I listened to it three times trying to get the information and I finally just deleted it. It's ridiculous for someone at an executive level to have to listen to a three-minute voicemail from someone who cannot summarize. That's an essential skill at the executive level. It says you do not think appropriately. It's interesting. So you might be tempted to brush that off and say, well, that's just communicating. That's just talking. But what it says is it tells other people how you think. And so if you're a new executive, they're going to think, well, you don't really belong in the C-suite. Or if you are an advisor to the C-suite, 
or you're hoping to make it to the C-suite someday, they're going to say that that person just doesn't think strategically. They don't think like a leader. And so they really don't belong in the C-suite. Right. You're writing and you're speaking when you speak formally is a reflection of your thought process. And if they do not see that skill to summarize, they're going to see a gap there. Well, the fourth component of personal presence is acting like a leader. And you say that that's the part that many people forget about, perhaps because it's the least observable. But not acting like a leader is what gets many executives and their companies in trouble. And it seems like we only see it after everything has gone horribly wrong. What's included in acting like a leader? Well, I'm talking here in that fourth part of the book about character issues, uh, acting with intention, integrity, particularly honesty. That's one of the key character traits. Being approachable, I think, is another very important trait. People don't like arrogance. They just don't. They, they admire someone who has a touch of humility, not so much so that you feel like you are not competent and you can't handle things, but just a right assessment of yourself. Self-effacing humor is always good. People appreciate that. And showing compassion, being concerned about others, showing respect for others, no matter their station in life. So I think those four things are some of the top character issues that really count at the executive level. Today, we've been talking about how communicating with confidence in the C-suite requires having executive presence. And presence is simply being fully in the right role. As an executive, we start by creating the best first impression that we are ready and energized yet comfortable in our role. And the four aspects of presence are to look, talk, think, and act like a leader. Diana, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jesse. I've enjoyed it. Diana is founder of Booher Consultants, an executive communication training firm. Her latest books include Creating Personal Presence, Look, Talk, Think, and Act Like a Leader, and the revised edition of Communicate with Confidence. The website for her firm is booher.com. That's spelled B-O-O-H-E-R. In our show notes for this episode, we'll provide a link to those books and to her firm's website. You can find those show notes at engagingleader.com forward slash 34. And while you're on the show notes page, please provide your thoughts or questions in the comments section. Or you can connect with us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. In case you missed it, be sure to listen to Engaging Leader Episode 11 with Executive Coach Tom Henschel with more on how to create executive presence. You can find it at engagingleader.com forward slash 11 or in iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast directory. This is a production of Aspendale Communications, a consulting firm where my colleagues and I partner with mid-size and large employers to attract top talent, engage employees, and deliver superior business results. Find out more at AspendaleCommunications.com. Our thanks to Joe Sherwood, our producer, James Marler, our sound engineer, Cliff Ravenscraft, our podcasting advisor, Rick Tarrant, our announcer, and Christopher Seal, who composed our theme music. Until next time, remember, whether you realize it or not, you are always communicating and leading. Let's make the most of our opportunities to engage the people we care about.